A reading from James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, about faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but there's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father, Abraham, considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son, Isaac, on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures were fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen. It was George Michael who famously released an album in 1987 entitled Faith with the hit single, You've Gotta Have Faith, Faith, Faith. Who'd have thought you'd been coming into church this morning to hear about George Michael declaring you've got to have faith. But he was absolutely right. We've got to have faith. We need faith. It's something we've got to have. It's not non-negotiable. It's not something that you may or may not want or may not want need to have. You've got to have it to be a Christian to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question for us this morning, the question posed from that reading from James is just what is the nature of faith? What does faith look like? What is it? You see, the nature of faith has been debated for over 2,000 years. And the first thing we see in this passage in James chapter 2 is this, a debated faith. A debated faith. You see, James writes in this passage in a very argumentative style. It's what is called a diatribe. And in diatribes in the Greek, you actually invent another opponent and you actually use them to say the words of your opponents and you fight or combat the argument through the words of your opponent. And James is very keen to bring clarity to this very issue. See, elsewhere... The Apostle Paul is equally clear that faith is very important. Paul makes the profound statement that faith is the basis of our salvation. Romans 1 verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's Paul speaking in Romans 1.17. He says that it is um, a righteousness by faith from first to last. In the Apostle Paul's mind, faith is critical from first to last. It is vital to who we are as Christians. And elsewhere he writes in Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then later on in Romans 3 verse 28 he says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So just what role do works play? What role do deeds play in our lives? What part of our faith is seen in what we do? And how important is that? Because James is arguing here that it is very important. Without it, you aren't saved. You see, James has responded to a situation he had begun to observe in the early church. Where it appeared that some people were taking the teaching of Paul and using it to argue that all you need is faith and that is it. Mere mental assent, mere processes in the mind. It didn't matter what you did in your life, as long as you believed in your mind, in your brain, as long as it was up there, it didn't matter if it was anywhere else. In fact, in the argument later on that he presents for us in this passage, he appears to be saying that some people were arguing that just as Paul says faith is a gift of God, they were saying, well, I've got, I haven't got the gift of faith, I've got the gift of works. Or others were saying, well, I haven't got the gift of works, I've got the gift of faith. So some were using it as an excuse for the fact they said, well, I believe in God up here, but I haven't got the gift of love. I haven't got the gift of generosity. I haven't got the gift of evangelism. But I've got the gift of faith. I'm okay. It's all up here. I remember being in a, in a charismatic church for a while. We didn't stay there very long for obvious reasons. Um, in Watford, when Phil and I moved down from Scotland to go to London Bible College, we went along to this church that was called Sunshine Ministries. Uh, it, it, it was um, a, a, a new kind of church. And they, they used a school hall, the church, they turned the church into a Christian school. And so all the furniture, all the, all the seats were put out on the Sunday and then they were taken away on the Sunday and the desks were put back out for the school. And I remember being there and a few of us every Sunday would put out all the chairs or move, move, move the desks away and make it a church for the Sunday. And then after that, we'd get it ready for the school on the week. And it was amazing because there'd only be a few of us doing it every week and there'd be loads of people standing around watching us having their coffee and eating their biscuits. Every Sunday that took place. And I went up to one of them and said, would you like to help us put out the chairs? And this is no word of a lie. He said to me, well, I'm sorry, that's not my gift. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for giving me the gift of putting out chairs. <laughs> it's not my gift. And this is the situation that James was facing here. He, there were Christians saying, I've got it, it's all up here, but forgive me if it's not in my life because it's not my gift. God hasn't given me that gift. Oh, what a wonderful excuse that is. Going through your life saying, well, I can't do that. Can I, can I drive you to the, the station? I'm sorry, my dear, it's not my gift to drive you to the station. It's not my gift to put money in the offering. It's not my gift to ring you up and see how you are. I'm sorry, that's just not the way God's gifted me. What an excuse. 
And this seems to be the situation that James was finding here. And some Christians were arguing they weren't surrounded to have the gift of deeds, the gift of action. And so James says in verse 18, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You see, it's very hard to demonstrate faith without action, isn't it? How do we know it's up there if there's nothing to show for it in your life? We've only got your word to go on. If it's just stuck in here between your ears, how do we know you've got faith? What evidence is there of that faith? If you step out on the road, and I don't recommend you doing this, um, but if you do step out on the road and you notice there's a car bearing down at you at great speed and you look at the car and you look at the speed and you look at the driver and it's obvious the driver hasn't seen you, you may believe in the reality of that car. You may believe that physically it is travelling at great speed. You may recognise that the person hasn't seen you on the road and therefore is not going to stop. But all that belief is not going to save you unless you get off the road. Faith without actions achieves nothing. Bob Vernon worked for many years as a policeman within the Los Angeles Police Department, the very famous LAPD. And he tells a story of how they used to train the rookie policemen in the wearing of the bulletproof vests. And bulletproof vests, I've won many myself in operations, are a great source of comfort because they protect you from potential uh, ballistic attack. And they would place, get these vests and they will place them on mannequins at the end of the firing range. And the policeman, each policeman will take a time to shoot several rounds down the range at the mannequin wearing the bulletproof vest. At the end of that time, Bruce Vernon will get all the policemen and they'll walk down the bottom of the range and examine the mannequin and see that none of the rounds have penetrated the armour fibre of that vest. And then Bob Vernon always used to say to them, says, right... We've seen it on the mannequin. Who wants to now wear the vest? And time after time, very few policemen would step forward to put that vest on their body. You see, it's very easy to give mental assent, to agree with your mouth, but not to demonstrate your faith with your life. On one level, faith can just be words. But unless actions follow words, those words can be totally without value, totally meaningless. When your partner asks you if you love them and you say, I love you, unless you put those words into action, they are meaningless. They are meaningless. Faith has to be demonstrated by action. Just think about flying for a moment. Whenever you fly, you put your life physically in the hands of the pilot and in the principles of flight. When you go aboard that aircraft, you are bodily putting your life in the hands of the person at the controls. And in reality, that with thrust and lift, you can take off and fly safely to another destination. That's what faith is like. If you stand on the tarmac and look at the plane and say, I believe in flight, but do nothing about it, it will benefit you no, in, in no way at all. It's only when you put your body in the hands of the pilot and aboard that aircraft that you are demonstrating what faith is like. And so James is saying here that the evidence of genuine faith is action. Real faith is always seen 
in behavioural change. Think about it. If a doctor says to you, unless you change your diet, you'll be dead within a year. The, diet, the doctor's going to know if you believe in him or her by the fact you change your diet. And if you don't change your diet, what does that say about your faith in that doctor or in his prognosis? And if a teacher tells you you must revise to have any hope of passing an exam, how do you demonstrate to that teacher that you believe in their words if you don't revise? And James gives a wonderful example here of someone in the church who is poor and has neither clothing nor food. He says in verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The word used here for naked is the Greek word gymnos. And gymnast is the word from which we get the word gym. And it's based upon the understanding that the Greek athletes, as they were, used to believe that when you did any kind of athletic endeavor, any kind of sport, any kind of physical restriction on your body limited your performance. And for that reason, all the, gym, all the, um, the, the Greek athletes used to do all their sports naked. They didn't wear a single stitch on their bodies. It was done because they were freedom, and it was done also because they didn't want um, some clothing to give someone an advantage upon another person in what they're wearing. So the Olympic Games, the original Olympic Games, were done with all the, all, all the, um, the athletes being naked. So the Greeks didn't just give us the Olympic Games, they also gave us the streaker. And James is saying here that this person doesn't have enough clothing to keep themselves warm doesn't have enough clothing to preserve their dignity, doesn't have enough clothing to exist day by day. And what good is it if you just say to them, oh, I can see you're naked, but <laughs> be well clothed. They didn't have enough food for their daily bread. Be fed. In fact, literally in the Greek, the word there is, is, is a vulgar word. It means to be engorged, not just be full, but be completely and utterly overwhelmingly stuffed. As if this person who can't even afford enough food for the day can be stuffed by anything. What good is this? Saying to someone, be filled, unless you convert that, those words into action. You could even pray for them. Father, keep this family warm and give them food. Amen. But what good does that prayer do unless you're willing to put your money where your mouth is and to demonstrate your love by action? Unless it's translated to action, this family will remain cold and hungry. And words without actions can be meaningless. And so, so James goes on from talking about a debated faith. He talks about a dead faith. And this is really important. He talks about a dead faith. He's emphatic. He says in verse 17, In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Faith without actions is dead. No debate. He is emphatic. He is totally clear that unless we see evidence of faith in our lives, our faith is meaningless. It is dead. And he says three things about faith in this passage. He says, first of all, it's useless. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, what good is it? It's no good. Faith without actions is no good. 
C.H. Spurgeon claimed that 98% of the people he met, including criminals he visited England, England's prisons, told him that they believed in the Bible, and they believed the Bible to be true. But he said of those 98%, the vast majority never made a personal, life-changing commitment to Jesus Christ. For them, believe was not an active verb. Unless we believe with action, that faith does not do anything in our lives. It doesn't save us, it doesn't save anyone else. It changes nothing. And we live in a country that pretends it's a Christian nation, likes to think of itself as nice and respectable, British and Christian. And unless that faith touches the lives of people and we can see in their lives the evidence of that faith, it is meaningless, it is useless, it is dead. James goes even further. He says in verse 20, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? James is being very argumentative because this is so important. And I know people, I like Spurgeon, I've met so many people who say to me, say to me, Cole, I believe in God. Padre, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. But their life reflects no impact of that belief. And that faith is not saving. It is totally useless. And James says here, you foolish person, literally foolish person is very descriptive. In the Greek word there is kenos, which means empty. James is saying, you empty-headed person, you shallow person, you vain person, you person with no knowledge or understanding. It's really very strong in this passage. He's saying that the idea that faith should not be associated with action is vain, it's empty, it's shallow, it's basically stupid. James doesn't hold back because this vain belief is in danger of destroying many millions of people. In fact, it's a faith that's succeeded by demons. And James makes that staggering point in verse 19. He says, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. <laughs> it's fascinating. The, the actual statement, you believe in one God, is a reference to the basic Jewish creedal statement, the Shema. And the Shema that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is a statement that every um, strict religious Jew will say twice a year, it's, uh, twice a day. It's a daily statement of their faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is it, the basic statement of the Jewish faith, the Shema. And here James is saying, even the demons believe that. They believe that God is one. They believe in God because God made them. They believe in God, but that faith of theirs is non-saving faith. They're not saved by that knowledge. And in fact, they're better than the people who have faith and no works because at least the demons shudder. At least they're scared of the consequences of their inactivity. At least they're terrified by the reality of when God returns and they will be judged, but they will be destroyed by their lack of um, active faith. James is saying that the demonic faith, the faith of Satan, is better than the faith of many people on this planet because at least they go as far as being scared of the consequences of non-action. And James is quite clear. He says, faith without action is just dead faith. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. 
Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, our faith needs to be more than just a confession. It needs to impact our conduct. It needs to be seen in our lives. And this is not new. James is not teaching something new here. He's teaching the basic teaching of John the Baptist and the course of Jesus himself. John the Baptist, when he saw the Pharisees, said this. He said to the Pharisees, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, you may repent, but unless we see a changed life in that repentance, it means nothing. Produce fruit. Let us see in the fruit of your life that you really do repent. And Jesus, of course, says in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Calling Jesus Lord doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in Jesus Christ doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus, you have to follow what he teaches and what he says we should do. You live by his teaching. You live by what he says. It must impact our will. And so James finally comes from a debated faith and looking at a dead faith. He gives us a demonstrated faith. A demonstrated faith. Now, this passage, there's, there's been a big debate going on for years in, in, in certain recent years, well, not recent years, it's been going on for a long time, in scholarly um, discussion. And some scholars try to um, claim that Paul and, and James are at loggerheads. I think one of the reasons for this is because our PhD system is flawed and the PhD system, as all PhD systems, require you saying something new. So you've got theologians who try and say something new and everything new has been said before, so they invent something which is stupid, quite frankly, but they, 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 it's new and therefore it passes their PhD and they get their, they get their, their, their degrees. And you get, you get some of the most ridiculous arguments sometimes in, in theology claiming to be scholarly and, and it's not. But any reasonable reading of James and Paul's arguments tell you that they come from the same page. And one of the greatest effort, uh, evidences of this is that both of them appeal to Abraham the patriarch. And both of them refer to Genesis 15 verse 3. They're not different. They've got different angles on the same point. So Paul says, in, in, uh, he, he quotes Genesis 15 3. Genesis 15 3 says this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham is saved by his belief, by his faith. And Paul takes this up as his great argument about salvation by faith in Romans. Romans 4 verse 3, what does scripture say, says Paul? Abraham believes God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes directly Genesis 15 verse 3. He does the same in Galatians 3 verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And James does exactly the same. He begins by his first example of demonstrated faith by talking about the great patriarch in verses 21 to 24. He says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So is James therefore saying that Abraham is saved by works, by his actions? No, of course not. What James is saying is that Abraham's faith is seen in his actions. It's demonstrated. The evidence of Abraham's faith is in what he did. From when God first called him 
to go to the, in the direction of an unknown place called the Promised Land. Time after time after time, the patriarch Abraham demonstrated belief and faith in the words of God. He moved his family into an unknown destination. Constantly, we see him moving in the direction of, of, of what God has told him to do. His faith is seen in action. And so James makes it so clear in verse 22, and this is a pivotal verse in this passage. He says this, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. You see, faith is the starting point of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But that needs to be translated into how we live our lives, by what we do day by day, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our future, what we do with our plans. And the, the word expression there, it made complete, is wonderful. It's a lovely Greek word called tilios. And tilios literally means to make perfect. And who's perfect? Jesus Christ. And the closer you get to Jesus in your relationship, the more perfect he makes you. Now, you'll never achieve it, brothers and sisters, tragically. None of us will. All of us are going to remain far from perfection while we're in this body, while we're on this planet. But we're trying our hardest to become perfect because we link our faith into what we do. And as Paul and James says, that is making your faith complete. It's making your faith perfect. We don't achieve it, but we try to achieve it. Because faith and actions are the flip side of the same coin. Faith and behavior work together. The latter proves the former. You cannot have true faith without changing who you are and what you do. And then James, and then James describes Abraham wonderfully as being called a friend of God. And that's what it's about, isn't it? Christianity. It's never a religion in the sense of all the other world religions. Because in the other world religions, it's all about up here and knowing God and agreeing to the creedal statements. But here in Christianity, it is about that friendship you have with God that's achieved through Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is the one that enables us to know God and to not only know him as father, but to even call him by that intimate expression, Abba, Daddy. It is a relationship. And from the very first chapter, chapters of the Bible, Genesis, we find Abraham demonstrating the true nature of faith and he was God's friend. And this is the role of the Christian, to become a friend of God. What do we find in the very first chapters of Genesis? We find Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. And that relationship was destroyed and damaged by sin, by willful disobedience. And God wants to restore that relationship, enable that friendship. That's what faith is all about, a, a restored relationship. You see, Paul and James are in total agreement. Paul says, faith, we are saved by faith. And James says, the mark, the hallmark of faith is action, is works. We're not saved by works. You can't put the cart before the horse. Put the cart before the horse and the cart will go nowhere. The cart is faith. Sorry, the, the, cart, the, 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 the horse is faith. But the horse pulls that work, that labor that you're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's critical. And so both Paul and James use as their great 
example, Abraham the great patriarch. But here's James. James is very provocative in this passage. I love it because I, I love a good argument. And here's, jo here's James being argumentative because then he uses his second example. Who does he use? He used Rahab the prostitute in verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab is a wonderful example of a courageous woman. Read about her in Joshua chapter 2. You can see she's got faith in Joshua chapter 2 verse 11. She believed God to be the God of Israel. She believed in the power of God. She'd seen the God, the, the God of the Hebrew, Hebrew people conquering the other nations and she had a fear and a respect for God. And because of that, when the, the spies came in into her sphere of influence, she hid them from the authorities and then she, she enabled them to escape. She was someone who put her life on the line by her faith. She's willing to risk all, risk her own life in order to protect these spies because she was a woman of faith. And she's described as one of the great heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what James is doing here is pointing out the extremes. You've got the white patriarch, Abraham, the father of a Jewish nation. The one who's of the chosen race, although the chosen race was yet developing because it was the seed of Abraham, was the chosen race. But you have the great patriarch, Abraham. And then you have a woman of dubious employment who was a foreigner. And she too stands as a great example of faith. And what we have here is, is, uh, is James saying, this is a universal principle. It doesn't matter if you're great and powerful like Abraham or you're someone who has a dubious past and is from, a, from a, a, a tribe that is actually one of the forbidden tribes. Everyone has to have faith that actually is demonstrated by action. This is a universal principle. And then he finally concludes in verse 26, this very emphatic verse. He says... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, a faith without deeds, without action, without works, is nothing more than a rotten, stinking corpse. Unattractive, something you want to avoid, something you want to move away from. It has no life to it. Professor Douglas Moo says this, he says, faith that has no works does not work. Faith that has no works does not work. Jesus is sorry, James is literally saying, we need to put our money where our mouth is. If we really believe in Jesus, you'll see it in your life, in the way you live and make decisions day by day. A 2000 member megachurch in America was filled to overflowing one Sunday morning and the pastor was just about to start the service when two men dressed in black with long coats burst through the doors and went right to the front of the church and turned on the congregation and when they were there they lifted from beneath their coats automatic weapons and they pointed them at the congregation and one of the men said everyone who's willing to take a bullet for Jesus stay in your seats and the pews quickly emptied as you'd expect, 
First the band was out the door and then there was the church leadership and the choir director and everyone was kind of running from the door to get out of the door. And eventually, after this massive rush for the exits, there's about five or six members of the congregation left and the, the preacher at the front. And then the two men, they put away their weapons and the first turned to the preacher and says, all right, pastor, the hypocrites are gone. Now you can begin your service. The problem is, is that unless our actions match our words, we don't have harmony in our lives. That's the word that the John, James uses in verse 22, the sinking of faith and actions. And in one sense, brothers and sisters, all of us are hypocrites. Time and time again, I've told you this many times because it's so true. People say to me, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I tell people, there's always room for one more. Anyone who claims they're not a hypocrite is just lying to themselves and to those around them. I know that my life doesn't match my words. I'm a recovering hypocrite. And the reality is, the only way that you can demonstrate your faith is by action, is by living by the word of God. You're not a Christian because you have British parents or because you're British, whatever that means. You're not a Christian because you go to church or because you say a confession or a creedal statement. That doesn't make you a Christian. You're a Christian when people see the fruit of Jesus in your life, when they see the character of Jesus in what you're doing and what you say. Not perfectly. There'll be times when you greatly let the Lord down or you let yourself down. That happens all the time. But bit by bit, by submitting your will to the Lord Jesus, by submitting your life to the Holy Spirit, by asking God to change you, you begin to see glimmers of change. Could have been five or six years ago, you'd have lost your temper over that. But no, now, actually, you can control your temper a bit better. It may be that years ago, you, you would put only a, a pound or two in the collection offering once or twice a year. But now, you actually, you're considering the principle of tithing and giving a tenth of your income. It could be that you used to never volunteer for church activities, but now you recognise the importance of open door and the need to reach the vulnerable of Colchester, and now you, you get excited by the idea. It could be that previously you, you couldn't share your faith with anyone because you're terrified. But now you're so excited by what Jesus has done in your life that you begin to tell your story to those who ask you. Bit by bit, change is happening. It may, may not make you the next Billy Graham, it may not make you the next Apostle Paul or, your ne or the next Rahab, the prostitute. But there's change. There's evidence. There's your money being put where your mouth is. Faith that cannot be seen in action, cannot be seen in deeds, is not saving faith, it is a sham. People, let's ensure that our lives are matched, our words are matched by our lives that we live by the word of God, so that others can see like they saw the disciples. And they will say of us, these people too have been with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know that each one of us, you see our hearts. Father, you know what we are like when we're not wearing our Sunday best. And we're not surrounded by other Christians in the pews. We're not in the church. 
You see, Father, when we lose our temper. You see, Father, when we have unchristian thoughts. You see when we get angry, when we're critical, when perhaps we gossip. You see, Father, our minds. You know a word before it's even on our tongue. Father, we can't hide from you. And, Father, in the light of your, your, your gaze, we recognise that all of us are hypocrites. And yet, Father, it's our desire that we too will become perfect, more perfect. But our faith and our deeds, our actions will be in sync. And that others may see what you're doing. So we can look back in years to come and praise you that you have changed us. Not that it brings glory to us, but because it brings glory to you. Because we recognise, Father, that so often our own efforts don't amount to much. But by your Spirit, you are able to change us. And Lord, we thank you for the fruits of your Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gratefulness, self-control, things for which there is no law. Lord, we just pray that these fruits may be seen in our lives, that we as Christians may be known as people who make a difference because you make a difference in us. Lord Jesus, change us. Help us, Lord, to make a difference to our place of work, our homes, our families, our streets. Wherever we go, may you be in us, seen in us, changing us, and loving through us to bring your light and your change into this world in which we live. Lord Jesus, make it so, because we ask it in your name, to your glory. Amen.